Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Heal that wall. Heal that wall. Put on a proper suit. Do up your tie. What Great is it? supine protoplasmic invertebrate jellies. Dodgy Dave will answer it now. You're joking. Not another one? Hello and welcome back to End the Loop, East Norfolk's very own student politics podcast. I'm your host Jake and this week I caught up with Simple Politics founder Tatton Spiller. Enjoy. Uh, hi Tatton. Hi Jake. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, now you founded Simple Politics back in 2015 if I've, I've done my research correctly. Exactly then, yes. Just after it launched, just after the uh, the election, because well, I thought it would be a clean slate. You've now got over 584,000 followers on Instagram and thousands of others on the other social media platforms. Um, but just in case some of our listeners have been listen- living under a rock, uh, would you kind of explain what Simple Politics is and what was the rationale behind creating it? Simple Politics is there to just break down what's going on, give people the information they need to know, without any spin, without any of the nonsense that surrounds so much political uh, reporting. But most importantly, it's there where people already are. You don't need to close Instagram and head to BBC News or whichever other app you might have. It's just it's there ready for you when when you are already hanging out on social media. That wasn't quite the rationale which it started. It started as a website explaining the laws that were going through Parliament because no one does that very well but the problem with that was no one came to the website because who goes to websites right so i i quite quickly realized i needed to put the information in front of people and the best place to do that was social media Uh, you also have the weekly email which sets out uh, what happens in parliament every week i always enjoy reading because it's always in your your sort of light-hearted and friendly style but could you talk a bit about the process behind what goes into writing that every week the the email was one of the first things i set up actually alongside the website and it it would tell you what was going on next week in relation to the bills we're going through Parliament. It's, it's one of these things that builds when you first set something up and you're nobody, and let's, let's not forget, I am nobody. Like, I can't be like, I'm launching a website. And everyone goes, oh, wow, Tan's launching a website because nobody cares who I am, right? Built slowly. I think the first email I sent went out to like 12 people. And I think kind of 10 of them were my, were my mum. And, and then it, it, it builds kind of during Brexit. It was an absolute nightmare to, to, to write because it was all so technical and everyone was playing kind of old parliamentary rules. And so I spent my life kind of deep into Erskine May, which is kind of the, the, the book of how parliament works and the rules. And it was a massive headache. And now over the last year or so with the pandemic, it's become a lot less about parliament and a lot more about what's going on in the country. Writing that email is one of the highlights of my week because I get to be... I get to write like on social media. I'm limited to 80 words. Any post over 80 words is quite hard to read. So I have to really distill everything down. Whereas the email I can go, I can put in a bit more detail and a bit more humor. Um, and I can really just kind of write as myself. Uh, it's very different to everything else in politics does now. It's kind of a, a legacy thing, but I still really enjoy doing it and lots of people still enjoy reading it. So it's good. I like it. It's always one of the highlights of my week when I see that little notification come up that the emails come oh, in. Oh, great. One of the keywords that you kind of mentioned when you were describing simple politics was how um, it's not got any spin, it's sort of impartial. Um, and a lot of news organisations are criticised for lacking impartiality. 
and I see sometimes in the comments of some of the simple politics posts, there are a small number of people saying, oh, it's biased because you didn't talk about this or you missed out that. Yeah. But um, what does impartiality actually mean and how does simple politics try to achieve that? Well, I I, I suppose I can't come back on the, uh, the, the, the comments about, oh, I, I, since simple politics launched on social media, I've been getting comments saying you used to be impartial, but you've changed. Um, like literally when I had five followers, one of them would have told me, oh, you've changed now. And, you know, I guess there is change. Um, and impartiality, well, people ask me how I how can I be impartial? And because, again, it's not about me, right? I was a teacher, I taught English for 10 years, secondary, secondary English, um, alongside po politics and all the other things. But I don't like Jane Austen. I think Jane Austen's books are boring and I don't think they have much. I don't think the characters move very much. I don't think Darcy's, he, he's famously got deep eyes, but I don't think he has a deep character. I don't think I learn anything about the human experience from reading Jane Austen. But there have been occasions when I've had to teach GCSE students about Pride and Prejudice. You can't drag yourself into the, into the classroom Tell the students to open their blooming books. Come on, let's go back to Pemberley. Ugh. Because imagine that. Like, imagine how, the, how they're going to respond if you're like that. Like, yeah, I love, I, I've taught of mice and men because English teachers always teach of mice and men a million times a year. So I must, I, like, I've taught that book a lot. And I love every single word of that book. I think it's an absolute masterpiece by John Steinberg. I mean, it, honestly, honestly, I've probably, taught it as a book 30 times uh and every time i went through it i found something new and something deep and something exciting so the enthusiasm with which i attack of mice and men has to be matched by the enthusiasm with which i attack pride and prejudice or no one's going to care or the students won't won't work the student the students won't be up for it the whole thing's rubbish so you just enthusiasm and passion about everything, even if inside you're going, this is terrible. This is this isn't what we should be doing. This is this is an awful thing. And that's how I do impartiality. A new law comes out, and I go, this is amazing. I love this law. It's so brilliant. And then I also say, but it's also terrible, and it's terrible for this reason. And that gives everyone buy-in. Everyone can go, oh, I agree with that, or I disagree with that, and that's fine. Can, can I include all the nuance and all the angles? No, it's simple politics. You know, and that means that I have to sit here and read an article, read lots of articles and read the text of the bill and work out what the most important thing to do is. And that, that does mean I am selecting material and the selection of material can lead to a different angle on a story. It, it's impossible to not do that. When you're when you're when you're you when you've got 80 words, it's impossible to not do that. So there is never any intention to steer people one way or another. Like if there was, I'm um, six years in, I'd be playing a very long-term game here, right? To try and slowly adjust so that everyone votes. I don't know for who whoever I want them to vote for. It would be it would, I'd be playing a long-term game. It's inevitable there is some ang angleization, which isn't a word, but it all comes down to simplicity and trying to show two sides, trying to give people. I think it's especially, I'll get a long answer for this, but it's especially important 
to show people why something's been done. I mean, at the moment, where there's a lot of outrage, it tends to be about something the government has done rather than something. Although, actually, there's, it does go the other way too. But you would say, this is why they've done it. And that's a really important post to do. Everyone's shouting about how, I don't know, um, Dominic Raab has used a green pen rather than an orange pen to sign something. And everyone's like, why didn't he use the orange pen? He's a disgusting man. What a terrible man Dominic Raab is for his, or his denial of orange. Um, then it's an important post for some politics to say, some, here's why he chose the green pen. And here's why some people wanted the orange pen. So that it's just people get to see both sides, I guess. Yeah, and you know, you spoke about selecting what bits you have to include in those 80 words. And when you've got bills like at the moment, the police crime sentencing and courts bill, there's so many different parts of that. Like you've got bits about uh, protecting 16, 17 year olds against sports coaches and stuff like that. But then you've also got the crackdowns on protesting. There's so many different things to cover that it must yeah. be difficult to fit that all in. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just, they just they just form different posts, really. Um, the domestic abuse bill is the same, and there's there's parts of the domestic abuse bill that just everyone, most people are like, yeah, that that needs to be in in this bill. We support that. That's a great thing. And there are some things um, that some people don't agree with. And some people do agree with, and that's much more contentious. And you know, policing crime, the the, the 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 policing bill you're talking about, absolutely. The stuff about protests is hugely contentious. Whereas protecting young people from just horrid, 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 horrid people, again, everyone goes, yeah, that's decent. And but that's it's important to include that stuff because because if you ask people about the police bill, all they know about is the kill the bill stuff because that's what gets because controversy gets reported. And changes that just kind of everyone's behind don't. You talk a bit there about things explaining why politicians do certain things. And that's uh, quite a big theme throughout your book, The Breakdown. Yes, I think, I mean, I choose to trust politicians because, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, oh, I don't trust them. Well, I think most of them, most of them are there for the right reasons. Just to be an MP... You have to have spent a long time, for most people, you have to have spent a long time working for the party, you know, dropping off leaflets, volunteering to drop off leaflets on a wet Tuesday, kind of in, like after, like when it's dark and you're cold and you're doing it. There's no glamour there. There's no big expense account there. Like you could just be at home. And you're doing it because you believe in your party and you believe in the values of your party and you believe that your party needs to be in power. Now, it could be 20, 30 years after that that you become an MP. I just don't think you do all of that so that you can eat subsidised food in the canteen. Like, I don't think you do all that so that you can... I mean, so you can do any, any of the things. So I believe that most politicians are there with the best of intentions and they will vote and they will speak for the people and things they believe in. Yeah, I mean, there are some who do terrible things. Yeah, but, and course. there's there's a lot easier ways to make your millions and having to go through all of those years of hard work just to... Well, I mean, yeah, Jake, absolutely, to make millions. You're like, yes. But MPs don't get that much money. I think 80 grand, roughly, for an MP. And when you've stopped being an MP... 
if you are one of the top five cabinet ministers, right? If you become if you become really, really, really senior, you might find you can walk into some pretty seriously well-paid jobs afterwards, like, you know, consultancy and board members and kind of whatever. If I spend five years as the MP for small town in the middle of nowhere, and I work really hard for my constituents and I make speeches and whatever, I'm not getting some massively well-paid job afterwards. I advertised an SP job. Very part-time. I haven't got any money, so it's not, not you know, it's not minimum wage, but it's, it's not very well rewarded. And I had a former MEP apply. Someone who, because, because he's interested in politics and he was looking for work. This is not, oh, I'm made for life. Like, I'm not talking about the cabinet here. I'm not talking about David Cameron and whether or not he's been, you know, whether or not he's texted or whatever. Talking about people doing things for the right reason. And I think it's clear that people do because it's just not a sensible plan if you're doing it all for the wrong reasons. An MP, a good, hardworking, local constituency MP, doesn't have the power to do the thing, nefarious things that people suggest they might. So yes, I choose to believe MPs. I choose to believe they are have been elected for things that they believe, and that when they speak and when they vote, they're doing what they think is best for the country. Yeah, and I think something that a lot of people forget is that politicians have chronic job insecurity. They, they, they could wake up the next morning, there's a newspaper headline, their job's gone. I mean, yes and no. They can't be fired immediately. There's always got to be an election or they've got to be fired. And even if they're fired by their party, they can't be fired by their constituency unless they stand down. So the only way they can be booted out is roughly every five years. Yes, it's possible to wake up to... Uh, a uh, snap election under the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, which can take a while anyway. So, so it's not quite that insecure, but certainly, you know, not many people's annual review or kind of every few year review is you could get fired. And not only could you be fired, but there'll be lots of other people working very, very hard to get you fired. There's no other job, I think, where, where groups of people uh, come together and walk the streets to try and get you fired. I'd, I'd find that very upsetting. Get yeah. a turn out of SP now. Oh, okay. I think I'd just go, I'd walk. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about your book then. It's called The Breakdown, but what is The Breakdown? Uh, it's a very clever name for the book, and I can say that because it's not my idea. It's called The Breakdown because it breaks things down. It breaks down how politics works. Uh, but it's also about the breakdown in our society, about um, an inability to listen to each other. And this was written, and this was written three years ago now, I think. And it was, and it mostly referred to kind of, to kind of a, 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 a country divided by Brexit, where how you voted in 2016 and somehow kind of became a signifier for everything in your life. And if someone voted the other way in 2016, then they they would necessarily the enemy and were the destroyers of our country. But I mean, I, th I think it carried on. And you look at the way people talk about Jeremy Corbyn, for example, he is either the greatest man in history, or he is the devil incarnate. Very few people are anywhere in the middle of that. Very few, because it's the breakdown. We don't listen to each other. We don't, we don't, we, we talk, we talk a lot. We don't listen, we don't engage and find mutual understanding and look at where it is you're actually disagreeing because surely you're not just disagreeing about some 
guy from Islington. You're disagreeing about fundamental questions about how the country should work and about our political system and about uh, what it means to be a politician and all of these things that you have to roll back. And if you're listening and talking, then you can make progress into finding what it is you're disagreeing on. And then you can have a conversation about that and then you can agree to disagree. I'm not saying that, oh, you, if, that once you've tracked back to whether, um, you know, the, the, the country should be, should whether everything in the country should be run centrally or should it be run by private companies or whatever it is, but you can at least have a decent conversation about it and you can at least find mutual understanding. But where there's no intention for mutual understanding, where there is only an intention for attack and anger, and kind of a, a cipher for other kind of kind of kind of other frustrations. It was the breakdown. If we have broken down, we've broken down as a nation. We've broken down the possibility of talking to each other. So, so wh where do you think that this breakdown has come from? Is it just a recent thing? Is it social media or the newspapers? Where, where do you think that's, or is it something that's been? I think it's, I think it's always been around. It's always been around. You know, like the miners didn't have much time for talking to Thatcherites. Like that, that wasn't, there wasn't much of a, a lovely, cuddly dialogue. I think that social media makes it a lot worse because, well, there's the echo chamber effect, which is, um, which is so the algorithms means that, uh, let's say I've got a hundred friends on Facebook. Um, I'm aware that's a very kind of two, 2000s, Everyone has way more than that. And also no one uses Facebook, but I have a hundred friends on Facebook. Um, and three of them post quite a lot about, uh, um, I don't know, post offices, because they really care about the post office, right? And one of them posts quite a lot about um, the butchers because they're big fans of the local butcher. And I don't really like the butcher. Like I'm veggie and, you know, like I can see that kind of, Happy animal butchers are good, but I'm not really interested in their butcher posts. But I'm really interested in the, po in the post office post. So every time, every time something my friend posts about the post office, I'm like, oh yeah, that's good. Uh, envelopes, yeah, I'm in, in for that. And then I put my post up about uh, kind of packaging string, which I really like. And they go, oh, we can buy that at the post office. So they, they, like, they press like on that. The algorithm then knows that my post office buddies, our posts are like and see, and so I show them to me more often. And my uh, butcher friend buddy, no, don't go, no, no, don't, I don't see that anymore. So even within my web of friends, only the ones I agree with who I'm hearing from. So I begin to feel like everybody cares about the post office. Like the post office is the be all and end all. And it's not just me, it's all my friends on Facebook. It's not all your friends. It's just the ones you've been interacting with. So that's the more kind of benign side of it but there's also people who use the monetization of anger so every side has them these websites that tell you how evil someone else is how angry you should be about it and then when they've made you angry they then say i will sort the problem i've told you is a problem if you give me some money you can help me do it Right, donate now to support our work in fighting the evils of um, the pet shop next door. Right, 
I mean, actually, no. I don't know why, but I mean, pet shop is people. It's quite contentious. Let's not say pet shop. The stationers, because they're actually uh, competing with the post office, aren't they? The stationers. The stationers are evil. Can you believe they've got in green envelopes? Well, even there's a green envelope. Get them. If you pay me money, I will help stop this green envelope catastrophe. One of the great things about your book is it doesn't just point out all these problems and whinge about how terrible society's become. It also kind of points towards a solution about how we can understand like the key arguments on either side of all the battlegrounds and stuff and you talk through quite a lot of different things and I like to think of myself as quite balanced I like to I'm quite good at seeing things from both sides but even I was going through the book thinking have I been quite unfair about my opinions on that or should I rethink something about that and it, it, it's a really thought-provoking book and really well written oh you're very kind that's what I was saying earlier about civil politics explaining why someone thinks something different to you it's really important because it's so easy to go, you what? And just write them off. They're done. They, they, they disagree with me and they're stupid and wrong. When they're probably not. They're probably not. They've just got a different opinion to you. You say that you wrote the book three years ago and how relevant do you still think it is today? I think it's hugely relevant today, um, but just because because these issues, I mean, the the, the, the battlegrounds we speak about, which when I, so the book takes, goes through what different people with different ideologies think. And then what does that look like when the rubber hits the road? What does that look like in in the real life? So if I believe in, you know, the free market, then I might think that hospitals would be run better if they had more free market in them, more capitalism, more more competition to keep things going through a lot. You know, that 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 makes sense. If I think the free market makes things work better, and I can look at the evidence of the free market making things work better, I can look at the way that um, free trade has has brought up the standard of living across the world. I can look at all, and you know, I can look at various examples where it is absolutely evident that the free market has improved things. Can't that be an argument that the free market could improve our hospitals? And then you've also got the other side saying, well, absolutely not. Absolutely not, because our hospitals, they're, they're there to look after people. They're there for health. We shouldn't introduce any kind of profit motive because how does the free market work? It cuts. It makes cuts. It works out where money can be saved. We don't want to be scrimping and saving on saving someone's life. It's wrong. It's immoral. Look at look at how some of the trains are working or not. Free market doesn't always work. Why would you possibly bring that into our hospital? So the point is, you know, that's just one very small example, but you need to listen, you need to find out. And we can't come together unless people actively find, go, hang on. This prioritisation of the NHS is the only point of it to line the pockets of the Conservative Party donors. And again, I trust politicians. So I'm going to say no. No, that's not the only point of it. It's about it's an ideological belief that the free market would be great. And, and, and they would also say, of course, it doesn't matter whether you make money from it as long as it works. Don't let your ideology come between, between us and good hospitals. And they would, they would kick back equally hard. You need to listen to the other person and that's how we're going to get out you need to actively seek out why they think what they do and that's how we're going to get out of this mess because shouting doesn't help we, we keep kind of coming back to trusting politicians and whether or not that's a, a good idea and a lot of the headlines at the moment have been 
has Boris Johnson used party funding for his new flat or is David Cameron taking advantage of his text message contacts and stuff like that? What are your thoughts around these headlines? It's very hard because I don't know the real truth of no one knows what really happened because it's all kind of deep and dark and secretive. If David Cameron's texting Rishi Sunak asking for favours, that's dodgy. His relationship with Greenshill, if he's doing that now, how far back did that go? Was he doing things for him when he was a prime minister? It stinks. It, it really stinks. This flat thing, like this level of secrecy. I was explaining, I was explaining to my stepson over lunch yesterday about um, about how to avoid answering a question. You know, this idea that Boris Johnson paid for the flat. Yes, but how did he get the money to pay for it? Boris Johnson paid for the flat. No, well, what? Just tell us what's going on. Answer, and, that, and that infuriates me. You know, these, this Dominic, whole Dominic Cummings thing, and he's writing these allegations, he hasn't come any proof. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. But I've said I trust the, I, I, I trust politicians before, until they show me a reason not to. We're talking about four, five politicians. We're not talking about all the members of the House of Lords, all the members of the House of Commons. I think it's important to not, not trust, for example, not trust your local MP, because it looks like David Cameron might have done something. And he might not have done, I don't know. I don't know. We know he sent those texts. You know, the, like the, um, the example of Dyson, where Boris Johnson told Dyson he would fix it. Telling an incredibly wealthy business person that you will fix the tax system for them doesn't sound like a great thing to do. But he was trying to make ventilators at a time when we had no ventilators. There was serious worry that lots of people would die. Is that okay? Is that okay? That's a real debate, I think. Is it okay to just circumvent the rules? Just to say, I'm, I'm on this. You, you, make this. you make these machines that will save our lives and I'll sort the rest out. Or should it be, no, we never go around these things because these things are important and these things are in place for a reason. That's, that's a real debate to have. Is Boris, Do Boris Johnson dodgy? I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I was annoyed that this question wasn't answered and that stinks. That's not transparent. Do you think we need more transparency in these sort of areas? I don't know how you, how you achieve that. People are people. Clever people are clever people. If they want to hide something, they'll hide something. I don't know. I don't know, Jake. The vast majority of politicians are decent people doing what they set out to do from the get-go, trying to make the country better in the way they see it. We've also seen in the news quite a lot of different protests. Obviously, last summer we had the Black Lives Matter movement, and then this year we've had Kill the Bill and the Sarah Everard vigils. We've spoken about uh, people just shouting and not listening to the other side of the argument. If these protesters are doing that, do you think that any meaningful change is going to come from them? Protest does bring about change, but very slowly. I mean... The way to make change, the way to make change happen is to persuade the people who have the power to make the change that that change needs to happen. That's how you do it. Will the protests in Parliament Square that we've had for many, many different things persuade a single MP inside the House of Commons next door to change the way they vote? Probably not. So what's the point of protest? Well, it's a demonstration of public will. It's a demonstration of force of will and it gets to the public it helps people more people join the cause because they see what it is and they see the arguments and and demonstrations can do quite well at teasing out the arguments 
for things because the media get get involved. And sometimes when you're really angry about something, and I was a teenage activist. I mean, I, you know, in my early twenties, I was very much an activist. I was, uh, you know, I've seen the inside of police cells. Sometimes you just need to get out there and you just need to get on the street. And seeing other people alongside you on the street, that spurs you on. So you can go on and fight whatever your cause is in a stronger way after that. Target the people who you need to target. Bring on board more people. Moment it builds momentum towards where change can happen in the future. But one, one protest changes nothing. I'll give you an example of this. Um, the biggest protest in this country in forever was against the uh, 2003 Iraq war. They talk about possibly a million people in London, and there was more people in Manchester and Liverpool and Edinburgh and all over the place. Famously, the 2003 Iraq war happened. The, the pro that massive, massive protest happened, and then the, it went ahead anyway. The war went ahead anyway. But subsequent wars didn't happen. Subsequent bombings didn't happen. It didn't have that immediate effect, but it demonstrated the public will and it got people involved and it had a longer term impact. Uh, you talk in the third and final part of the book that you talk about people who have made changes through protest petitions and other means. Uh, I just want, out of the people who you mentioned, who, who do you draw inspiration from the most? All, I mean, all of them. I think they're all, it's the relentless nature that they all have in order to really make change. And they're all individuals, except for Finn the dog, who's not an individual. Is a dog an individual? I mean, they're an individual dog. I'd um, say so. Yeah, okay, they're all individuals then. But you have to, just have to be focused, relentless, and it can be for a very, very long time. But by focus, it's this most important point. You've got to find who can make the change you want. And if it has to be a law, then it's got to be MPs or someone in the government. But if it doesn't have to be a law, like some kid just got Waitrose to stop selling mag children's magazines with plastic toys on the front. Because every time you go into the shops, I'm sure you've noticed, there are these plastic toy magazines for kids. And they, they just, they're just single-use plastic, aren't they? She wanted to stop that. And so she got in touch with Waitrose because they had the power to make that change. And by choosing the people whose power, who have that power, that's how you get what you want, right? Who is it? What specific change, and this is something that's very hard about Black Lives Matter, is that there's so much change they're protesting for. So, and they made a massive difference. Like the events in America made a big difference and the protests over here made a big difference. And I spent a long time thinking about what SP was doing and how I could change things around. And lots of organizations did that. So they kind of, those protests kind of had a big effect, but something more specific, who has the power to change what you want changed how can you get to them that's that's how to make change happen so i can sit at home and moan to you know my partner or you know my children or whoever else about something change that is never going to make change happen working out who you're who you're focusing on what methods are going to work letter writing personal visits protests a social media campaign a big kind of billboards what's going to work to make that person or those people come round to your perspective. So that's the focus. And also change doesn't change doesn't happen overnight. Like I talk about Nigel Farage in the book. Like I know he's he's, he's a divisive guy, not everyone supports everything he's ever done, but he was fighting against the EU from before the EU. His dad was a massive fighter against the EU. Like he's been anti-EU for a very long time. And then he played a major part in getting Britain out of the European Union. Like it's amazing. Relentless. 
that focus, he knew he needed the people on his side and he knew he was good at the telly. So he got on question time. So he got on, got himself in front of people. He used his skills. He was focused on how he was going to do it. And he was relentless for years and years and years. One more thing to talk about is the elections coming up. Um, how do you think they're going to go? I think no one's going to turn up. I cannot talk about local elections on my social channels at the moment because no one will touch it. Nobody cares. Like We keep putting up posts. No one is interested. And they're only a week away. Maybe we can keep trying to get more, keep, keep, keep being relentless. You know, make the change we want is more turnout. The focus is I've got to get more people to be interested in it. And I know who my people are, and I've already got social media contact with them. So I just need to be relentless in my pursuit of that change. Is that going to be enough? I, I, I don't know. You know, in Scotland, it's interesting whether the SNP will have a full, a full big enough majority to call for an independent, independence vote sooner rather than later. A few months ago, it looked almost certain. And then Alex Sam Sturgeon kind of come to a head. Will Alba make a difference? Can the Conservatives make gains in Scotland? Douglas Rossi's have had quite a good time of it. Um, in Wales, I think it'll be very similar in Wales. We know the big mayoral elections are incredibly boring because we know Sadiq Khan's going to get in. We know that Andy Burnham's going to get in. We know that um, Andy Street's going to get probably... Andy Street's a bit less certain, but Andy Street's almost certainly going to get in. So the big, the incumbents, the people who are there already, are pretty much all going to carry on being there. No one even seems to be thinking about the Hartlepool by-election. And normally by-elections are really vital. But I think, and that, that might go either way. We don't know if it's going to be Conservative or Labour. But Boris Johnson's got a huge majority, so it doesn't really matter there. The, fo the focus isn't on Parliament at the moment, let's face it. Apart from Kill the Bill, the focus isn't on Parliament. The maths in Parliament are irrelevant because Boris Johnson's got this huge majority. Everyone just wants to go inside and have a pint or a gin. You know, I don't want to leave gin drinkers out of it. I, I don't think anyone's going to turn up, and it's very sad. And how? what happens if you have five years of a council that no one voted for what it, how does democracy work if you have 20 percent turnout do you think people are just completely drained and fed up of politics after the last four or five years yeah and i think that it's it's a, these elections everyone in the uk every single person in the uk has a at least a vote next thursday everyone and with a general election there's some real narrative but with council elections there's a different i'm in kent and i've got a different um set of council manifestos to what you've got in norfolk right so how can any national tv program even like the bbc's local tv pro politics tv shows are bigger than single county like yours will be east anglia or look east is it look east yeah look east. So, it's, so it's more it's more it's more even than east anglia right so so they can't look at the manifestos either so what engages people is policy should we do this or should we do this it's up to you you choose let's have an election come out and vote tell us we're going to do this or this the national media and some we can't do policy posts because there's too many policies and there's too many people there's too many places so you add a board electorate that's had too many elections recently you have an add an electorate that is just fed up of politics in general because they've had these daily briefings and this virus and this pandemic and they just want to get back to seeing their nan in a care home or they just want to get back 
to you know to to whatever it is you know like they they can do people people in couples who haven't been able to stay over with each other like for however long like like sod an election about bins i don't i don't care just take my bin like, i can see that i can see that but it's about so much more than bins obviously it's about so much you know it's about those care homes it's about those libraries it's about, it's about your high street it's about things that matter the thing your life will be changed by the vote next thursday and by not voting you're allowing other people to decide changes in your life. So let's do everything we can to get people out to vote. If 20% turned out to vote, most of that didn't vote for them. The way voting works, you might get kind of 40%. So you, what if only 8% of an area voted for a council? What mandate do they have to make changes? Like it's scary. Yeah, I think I ranted, sorry. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, do, do you think that that's also reflected in the fact that in the London mayoral elections, we've got 20 different candidates, many of them not, um, I don't want to call them unserious candidates, but uh, you've got two YouTubers oh. and you've got Count Binface as well. I think that uh, I think that describing him as a non-serious candidate is an insult. There's always been a lot of candidates for London election. Always, 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 always. That doesn't change. But London's, I mean, London's particularly particularly ludicrous because Sadiq Khan is going to win might win on first preference votes alone if he gets so he might get 50% of the vote first straight up because there's no question who's going to win there and it's it's kind of a dead rubber so that kind of attracts all kinds of people to go well you know I may as well have a bit of fun with it I guess I don't know what the in a general election it's a 500 pound deposit I think it's 10,000 pounds in London I mean everything in London's too expensive right like you pay five pounds for a coffee, ten thousand pounds stand an election. If you want to get your point across, is it Lawrence Fox? He's got he like he's very clear on what he wants, and he's very clear how he's going to campaign. What he's doing, we we're talking about change makers earlier. I don't want to put words into his mouth. I don't think he thinks he's got a chance of beating Sadiq Khan becoming the mayor of London. That would have to take some pretty full on thinking from him, but. I think that it's about getting his arguments across. How am I going to get more people to see my arguments, see my point of view? I'm going to run for an election. I'm going to get on the TV because I'm running for an election. I'm going to be able to put those put those arguments across. So that's that's a longer term change making strategy. Or maybe he does things going to be, you know, it, it would be quite a turnaround. Let's let's say that it'd be quite a turnaround if he managed to win to beat Sadiq Khan. I think current polling odds put him level with Lord uh, Count Binface, so it would be quite a turnaround. A lot of people ridicule some of the people who stand, but they're they're putting their point forward, or sometimes they are just there for art or comedy or or whatever. And I think there's space for that. The rules are clear. You want to join in, you join in. People want to vote for you, they vote for you, or not, they don't. And and you have to and you have your reasons for doing it. I want to do it so that I get my argument across. I want to do it so that lots of people see me and think I look funny in a chicken costume. I want to do it because I'm gonna win this election and never let people count me out, but when people hear me, they will vote for me and I'm going to win this election. You know, there, there's so many different reasons for doing it and none of them are invalid. I think that's the really important point. We can't judge other people's choices because they're not our choices 
and then to what other people want to do. A couple of final things before we end. Um, done a few live shows as well. Have you been missing them? Oh gosh, I miss them. I miss I miss standing up in front of uh, hundreds of families and making children say silly things. I miss being in a room, having a pint. Obviously, I never drink when I do a talk, but standing in front of a group of people and just talking politics. Yeah, it's wonderful. I, I, I've done a few Zoom things and it's awful because you just stand there looking at a camera and talking at a camera and I've got no idea if people are enjoying the jokes I'm making or if they're not or if they're getting the points I'm making or if they're not because I can't see them. I like responding to people like when I do live things. Like there's a lot of people do these live streams, musicians and comedians do live, live streams and that's very impressive and then you know they're much cleverer and more proficient performers than I am. Um, I just I like to make eye contact and I like to talk to people. I can't wait. I can't wait to get back up on the road. One of your other projects involves a card game, Policy Odyssey. Um, yes. I don't know whether you've got a, a deck to hand, but do you fancy a quick game? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, just to explain the rules to the listeners, um, basically we have four um, policy or solution cards, and we have to pick one that will best solve a problem on the card and then justify why that's the best. Uh, it probably won't be very the best logic, but we'll, we'll see how it works. Right, let's not do four. Let's just choose one. Just choose okay. one solution okay. card, then we have to justify it. Right, the, the, the problem is, oh, very topical, mistrust in politicians. <laughs> Couldn't have been a right. better card. Okay, you go first. Your solution. Oh dear, tax cuts for married people. Hit me, hit me, Jake. So I, I think a lot of the media attention around politicians often um, around extramarital affairs and things like that. So by putting more support into married couples, then the politicians might be less inclined to have these affairs. So then it wouldn't hit the media. And then we wouldn't have this problem of mistrusting politicians because they go behind their partner's backs and have affairs. Thank you very much. Okay, right. Thank you. Right. What have I got? Ban gambling advertising. When we see politicians on TV. And then immediately after that, like there's an ad break. And we look at kind of uh, slot machines and we're looking, we're being encouraged to spend money on who's going to win. I think that it becomes very confusing for the viewer as to which one of these is a reckless um, activity, which one of these should never be trusted, which one of these could you get addicted to if it gets too bad. And that confusion, that mental confusion between how terrible gambling is and how terrible politicians is would be removed with one thing and one thing only. And that is by removing any gambling advertising from TV. And then you would never have that problem of politicians and gambling advertising next to each other. That confusion would never arise and the world would be a better place. Wow. <laughs> If simple politics ever doesn't work out, I'm sure you've got a job in sales. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. That, that was, oh, that was not very good. Um, what we'll do is we'll put a poll up on Twitter and to decide who's won that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Be interesting to see yeah. if anyone actually votes. And also, I'd be really interested to see anyone who could, because uh, obviously I didn't do a very good job. On, uh, on gambling, advertising. What other arguments could I have used? That's what I want to know. Yeah. How can you get that, that ban? Yes. 
politics en on twitter head over there to vote in the poll um Tassin, thank you so much for joining me it's been great thank you jay i've had a, a, a lovely time uh, good luck with everything um and we shall speak soon i'm sure yeah oh thank you very much uh thanks to our listeners for listening and we'll see you next week <laughs>